Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. The W stands for Wayne. Mm-hmm. They're Wayne coin. <laughs> oh. you get, that gets you every time. I know. It's funny to be 45 years old and named after Wayne Coyne. He's, he's like 48, right? No, he's 50? in his 50s. 52. But it would be weird. I would have been named after a very, uh, like, kindergarten age Wayne Coyne. <laughs> right. You know. Maybe your parents were friends with his parents yeah. and they really thought a lot about him. Boy, he's a real achiever. Right. That Wayne Coyne's <laughs> going places. Okay. Uh, that was a weird sidetrack. It was already out of the gate, man. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling? Uh, I'm good. Got a lot on your plate. Got a lot going on. Oh, you know what today is? What? Dude, today is the day that I leave this office and I go to a shop in Inman Park and pick Mm -hmm. up four brand new Last Chance Garage hats. Oh, wow. It's a big day. Very big day. Big day. So I have a couple of people I'd like to thank. Uh It's a bigger deal than it should be for a grown man in a hat, (laughs) but we all understand. Uh, First of all, Katie, my... Custom patch maker. Mm-hmm. This is really where it all came together. If the patch isn't right, the hat's not right. Right. Katie killed it. It looks identical. And uh, you can find her work at tulipcake.com. Nice. T-U-L-I-P cake. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, people might ask you to make you uh, to make them last chance garage patches. Did you have her destroy the mold? And I said, I don't, you know, it's on you. It's up to you legally. Mm-hmm. Uh I'm just saying you might get requests. You should have been like Ivan the Terrible, who blinded his architects after they <laughs> built his palace. No, I don't care. People, I'd love to see these things around. And Lamoud Big Hats, L-A-M-O-O-D, mm-hmm. uh, for big heads. Because part of the problem <laughs> was finding... Uh, A big I mean, and tall hat? Yeah, man. Like uh, The problem I have with hats these days, I don't look like I have a huge head, no. but... They, they just fit so snugly and they don't go far down enough mm-hmm. on my head. Mm-hmm. So I finally looked up oversized hats and found Lamoud hats. And dude, they're exactly like the old hat. Nice. Except it doesn't stink. Oh yeah. Nice. Like these are great. I got four brand new. It's an ones. improvement for sure. So are you going to put one in like the seed vault in Norway? Uh, probably one there. You uh, there will be one in the uh, nuclear suitcase. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, I'll wear the other two. At the same time. At the same Front time. Front and back like Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, I'm super excited. So That's pretty cool. Thank you to Katie and Lamoud Hats for allowing me to spend too much money getting four hats remade. Uh, and speaking of, while we're thanking people, we, we owe a long overdue thank you to a guy who um, made us a really cool sign. Um, oh, you mean the, the sign this guy made for us like seven years ago? Yeah, his name's Matt Street. He's at fatbison.com and he made a really yeah. cool wood carved sign. Yeah, it was in our TV show. It was like, like the production company got clearance rights for it and all this stuff. And we love the sign, but we just forgot to ever thank Matt. So Matt, thank you so much for the sign. We love it. We have it hanging here in the studio. It is a, a work of art and we appreciate it. And we're sorry for the oversight. Yeah. Okay. Um, is that all the thank yous? <laughs> so let's talk about the misery index, huh? Yeah, what a great transition. Have you um had you heard of it before you came across this article? Yeah, I didn't know a lot about it though, and um apparently it's gone a little bit out of fashion lately, from what I understand. Yeah, I think so because well, we'll let's get into it. Okay, it turns out economics as a whole 
is in danger of going out of fashion. I read, oh, yeah? this, I read this really interesting article on Aeon, which is maybe the greatest website on the planet. Okay. Aeon dot, it might be dot co because I say that British about a lot of websites. I think I say it about <laughs> Aeon a lot. Okay, and and it just seems like I'm talking about different ones. But there's this um, article by Alan J. Uh, Levinovitz, and it's called the New Astrology, mm-hmm. and he basically makes a parallel between economics and economists and economic theory when yeah. you take economics and try to apply it to future forecasting. Right. And the um, the BCE Chinese astrologers that basically directed the way that the economy or the government was going to move based on the movements of the stars. So what are they saying? It's You might as well just do that? He draws some pretty pretty <laughs> interesting parallels between yeah. the two. That, that economics in and of itself is not necessarily flawed, but when it's used to forecast the future – then it becomes inherently flawed. Yeah, and this this article really kind of kind of yeah a yeah. little bit yeah to an extent. I mean, the misery index is a, a legitimate economic tool, and it's hit or miss in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think one thing that hit home to me with researching this is it just seems impossible to say that there's one correct way of doing things, right? Or that, that is absolute, and you like uh-uh. you know if you do things this way. Then there will be nothing but growth in jobs and the GDP sure. and GNP, and uh, it just it just doesn't seem to work that way. Right. I think the problem is is that if you listen to economists, they like to act like they do have a handle on that kind of thing. But if you really look into economics, it's very politicized. There's liberal economics and there's conservative economics, and the fact that each one's saying it's right kind of makes you think that maybe no one is, you know. <laughs> But the misery index actually is a is it started out as, from a guy who was pretty good at walking the line between conservative and liberal economics. Um, a guy, uh, what was his name? Oaken. Yeah, Arthur Oaken. Right, and he uh, he worked on Kennedy's staff, his Council of Economic Advisors, uh, John F. Kennedy, that mm-hmm. is, and he was. Um, I get the feeling one of the main influences in talking Kennedy, who initially did not necessarily agree. But talking Kennedy into kind of trying to enact both conservative and liberal economic policies simultaneously. Right. They were the U.S. was in a recession. Yeah. When Kennedy took office in 1961, um, and they talked him into not only increasing government spending, like welfare programs, they raised the um, the uh, minimum wage, yeah, and um, some other stuff like that. But they also cut taxes. Yeah. Which it's you do one or the other. You cut taxes and hope everything goes for the best because businesses will start investing in spending, or you start it, you start investing in welfare programs to help your ailing um, lower and middle classes. Right? You don't do both. Yeah. And Kennedy did both, and it was successful. Yeah. He well, he you know, at first he said, "I don't know about this. <laughs> I don't know about this, Arthur." Mike Kennedy sounds like a robot. <laughs> Mine kind of did too, actually. Yours is fine. Uh, but Arthur, Mr. Okun, Okun, Okun. I think Okun. Okun. It's a weird name. O-K-U-N. Uh, he talked him into it and said, trust me. And things worked out in that case. Yeah, well, and a lot of guys, including Okun's names, were made by this advice that panned out. Like the U.S. entered a boom. Yeah. And, um... Oaken ended up as being the head of the Council of Economic Advisors for Kennedy's successor, Lyndon Johnson, right? Yeah, and um, 
one thing that economists economists mm-hmm. love to do mm-hmm. is, um, I mean, they love to forecast and all that stuff, but it's all about data. Sure, and yeah. man, they love to pour over data, yeah, like stuff that makes the average person their mind bleed from boredom. They just find it fascinating. That's what they do on Friday nights. Friday nights. They pour over data, historical data, mm-hmm. trying to find, you know, it's like the big puzzle, and they're all trying to solve it. Right. So they pour over this data, Oaken did, and um, he said, you know what? I noticed something here. Between 1948, when we started recording uh, some some decent unemployment uh, rates. Right. Which I didn't know. I didn't know we started that in 1948. Yeah, it seems like it would have gone back before then. Uh, but between 1948 and 1960, he said, you know what? I've noticed that the gross national product rises 3% for every percentage point that unemployment falls, mm-hmm. uh, with the caveat that unemployment uh, has to be between 3 and 7.5%. Right. Which is a pretty, like... It's a pretty bold statement to say, I've noticed this is a, a definite trend. It is. And it came to be called Oaken's Law because it, it was verified. Other people poured over the data and they're like, this guy's right. Man, he just keeps coming up with hits, doesn't he? <laughs> That's right. Um, and the the reason you would want to know some arcane piece of data like that is that if you know that that's the case, then you can say, well, if we attack unemployment and can get it down a couple of points, we can, you know, raise GDP or GNP, you know, by 3% every time we drop it. So when we need to bulk G- GNP up, yeah, we just attack unemployment, right? Right. Easy peasy. Uh, yeah. And, and, and everyone and- said, thank you, Art. <laughs> yeah, things worked out pretty well for a while. But then the 1970s came along. And um, if you, well, we're going to talk a little bit about stagflation now, but if you haven't heard it, we have a, a pretty good episode. Was it good? I think so. Okay. It's called What is Stagflation from February 24, 2011. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I think as far as our economics episodes, it, it was not bad. Okay. I, I went back and listened to a lot of it. Oh, okay, good. Before I got bored. So it checks out? <laughs> yeah, the first three minutes were great. Sweet. <laughs> um, but yeah, go back and listen to that. But um, like he said, he served as chairman of the CEA for Johnson and then in 1973, a very uh, unfortunate thing happened that kind of ended up rocking the world and the United States in particular right. uh, with our economy. Um, so we're going to take a break, and we're going to talk uh, when we get back about the Middle East. What happened in 1973? The uh, Arab, I'm two years old. I am negative three. Okay. The Arab oil embargo happened, right? That's right. So at the time, until very recently, the U.S. was super dependent on foreign oil. Yeah. Like, like other countries, we wouldn't even sit down at the table with. We were getting oil from, right? Yeah, we're doing better now. Yeah. With our dependency, but back then, very bad. Very. Um, and it was a, a it was a. a Source of anxiety for a lot of people, and that anxiety actually panned out. So, in um, 1973, Egypt and Syria and a few other Arab nations invaded the Golan Heights and uh, the Sinai Peninsula to attempt to take back land um, from the state of Israel. Right? That's right. 
The U.S. Uh, was found to be supplying arms to Israel. So as far as the Arab states were concerned, the U.S. had cast its lot on Israel's side. Yeah. And they were fairly peeved about that. So they literally shut off the tap of oil flowing to the United States and to other countries that were found yeah. considered to be on the side of Israel in this in this war. Um, Huge deal. It was an enormous deal. The the this foreign dependency and the the um, precarious situation that it placed the United States in came to pass, and the, the price of oil rose thirty seven percent. The long lines at the gas station were never seen before or since, even after the financial crisis of two thousand eight. Yeah, um, it was just insane. There was gas rationing in the United States in nineteen seventy three because of the. Um, the oil embargo, and after a while, the taps were turned back on. But that shock to the system screwed the economy up for a, a decade. Yeah, inflation uh, went out of control, and um, a, a very uh, another unfortunate thing happened. Along the same timeline, unemployment started to creep up, and these two things happening at the same time is devastating. Yeah, and up to this point, so first of all, the U.S. had never had a shock to the system like that. That was one thing. Yeah, it wasn't a gradual thing. It was no, just it was like abrupt. It was, yeah. But the other thing is when you have something that has never happened before, you can look at it and say, wow, what, what happened? And new things that have never happened before come out of that. And one of the things was inflation and unemployment going up. Because up to this point, economists just assumed that the two were mutually exclusive. Sure. Like if you're, if you're, um, if inflation was up, prices were high, that meant that companies could go out and hire more people. Yeah. So unemployment, of course, would be low. Yeah, it kind of made sense. Well, not, not after the oil embargo. Yeah. The shock to the system led to, like you said, high unemployment rates and high inflation. And uh, it was a miserable time. Yeah, and that uh, was called stagflation. Mm-hmm. It also led to skateboarding, as we all know. Oh, yeah, because of the pools, right? Yeah, they could in, in California. Well, actually, that was the drought. But I think the drought was also tied into the economics. Sure. But they couldn't fill up swimming pools, so they started skating in swimming pools. Well, yeah, if you have a drought, then you lose your crops. And if you lose your crops, you lose yeah. money, a significant sector of, the, of money. Exactly. So good news, we have half pipes now. <laughs> right. And quarter pipes. And Powell Peralta. And Powell and Peralta. They're, they're still around, right? I think so, Of yeah. course. Uh, bad news is, like you said, it had a devastating effect for many, many years on the United States. Right. So Oaken starts to look around. He said, you know what? Things are pretty bad here. One might even say miserable. I haven't gotten any acclaim for a while. Yeah. Nothing's been named after me in a while. All right. So let me create this new, uh, this new method for looking at, uh, the economy. And it turns out to not be like a, a look over a period of time or anything, but just sort of like a Polaroid of that day. And not just that day for like the country as a whole or, um, for, the Fed or anything like that. But what he did that was different was he looked into what the, what it was like that day or that year for the average American. Yes. In their daily life. Right. And he called it the misery index. Yeah. And it was very rudimentary, uh, at the time. It was just a simple calculation of the yearly rate of inflation plus the unemployment rate. Yeah. So if you have like 5%, uh, inflation, and 2% unemployment, you have a 7% misery index. It's as simple yeah. as that. I don't know why it got so much, you know, why it was hailed as a big deal. Because I think Oaken had a, a, a 
a knack for noticing things that seemed obvious in retrospect. But, right. But at the time, no one had ever noticed before. Okay. I'll buy it. Thank you. Why not? All right. So now he has this index, and not only can he look at a snapshot of that day, he can go back because he was a, a data wonk. Sure. And he could look at uh, data throughout history. Well, at least in 1948. Yeah, which is when we started recording unemployment, like we said. Which must have been frustrating for him because our um, our inflation rates data goes back to 1914. But yeah. that's only part of the equation. Well, so he must have been like, oh, man. Sure. And to be able to look so at the Great Depression, more. you could have learned yeah. a lot, you know. Sure. Uh, so he went and he looked back and he says, here is what we've noticed. And this is so obvious to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that presidents and political parties are brought in and out of office, largely depending on how the economy is doing. Yeah, but they they kind of proved it. But not even just how the economy is doing. Like he he was saying, like the misery index, you can use it to predict whether uh, the the uh, presidency is going to change hands politically. Yeah. So 1956 uh, misery index is 6.53, which is great. That's during Ike. Yeah, very low. Mr. Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, and he got reelected because things were pretty good. Right. As far as the misery index goes. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody was pretty happy, even though they didn't really know what the misery index was because it wasn't invented yet. Right. They just had a general sense. Well, yeah, they didn't call it that at the time. No, they were just like, seems fine to me. You miserable? We like I. No, I'm not miserable. (laughs) Are you? So in 1968, uh, Johnson uh, came to the end of his term. And the misery index was up to 8.13. And then he had his Democratic successor, Hubert Humphrey, in line. And because the thing had crept up, people were a little more miserable. And they said, no, get out of here. I want Mr. Nixon in office. Right. And I guess I'm not I'm not sure about this. So I don't understand why Johnson was replaced by Humphrey, by the Democrats. And in this article, it seems to, to be because of this misery index. That it would have predicted that. But he was the incumbent president. Oh, was he only a one-termer? So let's see. So he was, he would have. I should know this. No, he, yeah, he was a one-termer. Technically one and a third or one and a quarter. Because he took over after Kennedy's assassination. But if his term was up in 68, then he would have won the 64 election. So he technically, I think would have been able to have been president again. I'm not sure. We could have found this out, too. Sure, but I'll <laughs> bet there's somebody out there who can explain it to us. And sure. if so, email us, will you? Uh, at any rate, Nixon gets elected, and um, the the misery index shot up to 11.67 during the first term, but then started to dis- decline enough that he did get reelected. Um, but then, uh, in 1974 with Watergate, the misery index leapt all the way up to 17.01. That's not good. No. That's, that was the all-time high at the time, from what I understand. I think so. Um, and that happened around 1974, which meant that when Watergate broke, some people who really subscribe to the misery index say, Watergate might not have been quite as big a deal if um, the misery index had been low at the time. Right. He might have been able to, to squeak by without resigning or being sure. forced out of office. I think everyone has more leeway if things are great. Sure. You know? But he his his uh his he his currency had been spent. Man, I watched uh, All the President's Men uh-huh. a few weeks ago again. Yeah. You ever seen that? No. Great, great movie. Yeah. I've always meant to. Really, really good. And just sort of like they don't make a lot of movies like that anymore. Spotlight 
reminded me of all oh, the president's men. Sure. I haven't just seen like, that one yet either. It's good. It's just, I call it movies for adults. You know, there's no chase scenes or anything mm-hmm. remarkable. It's just good, dramatic movie making. Yeah. Good stuff. Anyway. Wait, wait what's wrong with chase scenes? Huh? What's wrong with chase scenes? <laughs> no, there's nothing inherently wrong with a chase kidding. scene. But <laughs> I know what you mean. Just for the sake of a chase scene, which we see a lot of these days. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Mark Ruffalo's chasing a priest <laughs> in a car in Spotlight. Yeah. Um, where were we? Okay, we were with Nixon. Um, well, not with Nixon. You know what I mean. Ford comes in office uh, for a, a short time. And he actually managed to get the misery index sure. down. Oh, well, I think just the fact that Nixon was out, I think that probably helped. Yeah. Um, you know? Yeah. And inspire, like, consumer confidence and the like. So it crept back down to 12.66, but not enough to keep um, uh, the Democrats and Jimmy Carter from coming into office. And Carter actually cited the misery index. Yeah. It was relatively talked, new at the time. Yeah, he talked too much about it. But it was it was a gee whiz thing that yeah. you could really just point to, like, this plus this. This is the misery index. Yeah. Uh, can, you, can you hear me? Yeah. That's but, my question. <laughs> But um, that was his famous quote. Can you hear me? It came back to haunt him, though, to say the least, because he talked a lot about the misery index. And then in his uh, term, the uh, it reached an all time high of twenty one point nine eight. Yeah. Which, man, I really think that shock to the system under the oil embargo um, and plenty of other stuff. This stuff gets laid at Carter's feet, I think, unfairly in a lot of respects. Well, I mean, it- I would love for someone to really that really knows their stuff to explain to me exactly how much a president's influence has on the economy and how long it takes for that to bear fruit. Yeah, I, I would love to know that, too. I think, though, uh, the guy who came after Carter Reagan is a pretty sterling, unassailable example of an impact a president can have on the economy. Whether you agree with his politics or his right. economic policies or not, he most decidedly had an effect on the economy. Yeah, I just remember hearing one time, I need to look this up, but somebody told me once that the, the economic impact of a presidential, a four-year term mm-hmm. is felt the most like eight years later or something. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Economies don't move on a dime. Yeah, I just, They're I don't know if that's hulking, correct. big, lumbering things that aren't fully understood by anybody. Yeah, it's interesting to me now more than ever before, though. Because sure. remember, economics used to just bore me to I tears. know. I was really, really surprised when you suggested this one. It's slightly more interesting to me now. What changed? <laughs> oh, just wondering things like that and during an election season. Yeah. Like, are the decisions we make now going to affect us in one year, two years, eight years? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, if there's any economists who are still listening after that initial remark about the new astrology... <laughs> We'd love to to get a primer on how long it takes for a president to impact an economy, if they do at all. And I'm sure it's a range, you know. Sure. It's not like starting at eight years. And really, honestly, was Carter that bad or was he a victim of cross stars? Yeah. I mean, the, you can make a case for a lot of ills of presidencies not being directly at their feet. Well, you remember that uh, <laughs> that Simpsons where they unveil a, a statue of Jimmy Carter in Springfield, and on the pedestal it says "Malaise Forever," and somebody <laughs> goes, "Jimmy Carter, he's history's greatest monster." <laughs> Poor Carter. So, uh, like we said, it came back to haunt Carter because he talked a lot about the index. It rose a lot. Then Reagan came in and was like, "Well, let's talk about that misery index that you like to talk about so much. Right? That's at an all-time high." 
uh, Reagan got in there, um, knocked it down to 9.55 uh, by the end of his term, enough to get Bush Sr. in. Um, it inched up some, then Clinton was able to... Uh, it didn't go up that much, though. And I read an interesting article today on whether or not Ross Perot really got Clinton elected, because that's sort of the popular thought. Uh, he was a spoiler? Yeah. I could see that. But um, He was definitely more in line with... Um Bush Senior's policies than Clinton's. Well, or at the time, yeah, you would think. But I read, uh, I read one article that said that it was kind of a myth that basically that Clinton won by six million votes, and it would have taken seventy-five percent of Perot supporters to have uh, been aligned with um, with Bush. Mm. And supposedly, exit polls showed showed it more like thirty-eight to forty percent. Mm. And so they're saying it's sort of a myth that Perot swung the election to Clinton. I see. But, I mean, that was one person's opinion, so who knows? You know, I've been reading a lot about, you know that that, that suspicion you can't quite kick, that there's really no difference between Republicans and Democrats these days, that they're really just kind of <laughs> all in the same little club? I think people feel that way sometimes. I've been sure. reading a lot about that, and apparently it's all based on neoliberalism. That's like the key. Oh yeah, and um, there's there's a lot of if you look into neoliberalism and the policies of neoliberalism, you realize we're like living in the thick of it. But no one, everyone's kind of blind to the idea that it's just a single thing that basically everybody in power subscribes to, right? And that it it has a, um, a trickle down effect of screwing over everybody below the top. Yeah. Um, but just the name itself seems totally fine, you know. But it's uh. It's it's interesting. Yeah, oh. I researched that a little bit lately too. Yeah, there's been some good article. That. We totally should. Yeah, let's do it, Chuck. Agreed. Man, we're gonna get some emails for that one from billionaires. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's just finish out this quick little recap. Clinton brought it down to seven point three five. Uh, things were great. Bush Jr. gets elected, um, despite the fact that Clinton had a low index. Well, it depends on how you look at the two thousand. Election. We should do one on that one too. But this is the, this is, that's considered one of those rare instances where the misery index didn't indicate where it was going to go, but you could also say, it might have. Sure. Had things gone slightly differently in the Supreme Court. Uh, George W. Bush, uh, the index rose from 7.35 to 11.4, and then Obama came in and went down to 7.87, but another weird flaw in the system is exposed there because, um, Despite the fact that the misery index was lower, uh, things were not good. The stock market had crashed. Um, unemployment was rising at a rapid rate. And they said, you know, this, it basically was another example of like, look, this misery index isn't all it's cracked up to be. Right. So let's work on it. Yeah. I think a lot of people said this is too simplistic. You, you can't rely on this. Yeah. But we'll talk about some of the um, additional factors that people have worked into the misery index after this. <laughs> All right, Chuck. So the misery index, Oaken, everybody's happy with him. Yeah. But they're like, this is just too simple, especially in what's called the post-stagflation era after the oil embargo. Yeah. Um, and so some people have said, okay, you can, there's certainly, there's other things you can add in to give a genuine, true snapshot of 
what the conditions are like on the ground, as it were, right? Well, yeah, not only what the conditions are, but whether or not performance over a period of time is getting better or getting worse. Yes. And, you know, rather than say, oh, under uh, under this president, the misery index was this, you know, and it gives you a pretty good idea. Yeah. The, this, well, this one guy um, named uh, Robert Barrow, he wrote a 1996 book called Getting It Right, Markets and Choices in a Free Society. And in it, he takes the misery index, Oaken's misery index, and he says, we can add some stuff to this to, to make it an even clearer picture, yeah. not just of the conditions on the ground, but you can take it and apply it genuinely to a president's entire term to see just how good their economic policies were or weren't for the health of the economy. Yeah. And he added some other stuff. Yeah, right? he added four main new measurements. Uh, took the inflation rate during the last year of the president's term, compared it to the average inflation rate over the entire course of the subsequent president's term. Which is based on what you were saying, that like the uh, a four-year term, right. the effects are felt like years down the road. Sure. So I think that's what he was doing there, right? Yeah, it makes sense. I uh, did the same thing with the rate of unemployment. Uh, that was number two. Uh, he added in changes uh, for the 30-year government bond yield over a presidency. And then finally... He said, um, I, I need to look at the difference between the, the long-term GDP growth and the real rate of growth. Right. Compare all these things along with the original uh, this plus this equals this. Right. And with the real growth rate, um, that's where you take the actual change, either the shrinking or the growth of the economy, the GDP year over year. Right? Yes. And he took that for year after year over the course of a presidency and averaged it out, I guess. That's right. Yeah, and he came up with what's called the Barrow Misery Index. And um, a lot of people think that that's where the Misery Index started, when in fact it was Oaken who came up with it uh, about 20 years before Barrow took it up and, and improved it. Yeah. So under Barrow's Misery Index, um, Clinton and Reagan, uh, that's Bill Clinton, of course, came out on top. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a guy named Steve Henke, about 10 years later, this was originally in 1996, and then Henke came along in 2006, and said, you know what, uh, we need to add even more things. And this all just makes sense. You need to, if you want a more detailed picture, then add more detail to the data going in, you know? Right. So he said, we need more detail. Uh, why don't we do this? Let's um, let's measure inflation and unemployment like we're doing. And then let's now add interest rates and subtract annual percentages from the GDP to get a more accurate picture. Right. And he said, you can use this anywhere. You can use it all over the world. Well, that's what he did, and that's kind of what made his uh, his version of it pretty famous. He figured out how to apply it to other countries, even countries that used um, price controls to yeah. keep inflation in check, which means price inflation is held back artificially. So Hanke looked into other things like um, the exchange rate in the black market in a given right. country, that kind of thing. Um, and he figured out real inflation rates, and he applied it around the world to find out what country is m- the most miserable and what country is the least miserable. And what he found in 2014 was that the most miserable country in the world was Venezuela, yeah, which had a hanky misery index uh, of 79.4. It's pretty high. Very high. Uh, and then Japan had the the lowest misery at 5.41. Yeah, the U.S. came in at about 19, correct? I think 11. Oh, 11th? Yeah. No, no, no. 11 was our... Oh, I'm sorry. 19th. Yeah, yeah. You're yeah, right. ranked 19th yes, with right. an 11 gotcha. rating. I didn't hear the... Th- yeah, because <laughs> my tooth is still gone. 
you'd think it'd be it'd be more pronounced. The th. If there were nineteenth, <laughs> I would have heard it clear as a bell. August can't get here soon enough. <laughs> so um, there are critics of this one too, though. There's critics of all these indexes. Well, yeah, the, 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 a lot of them say no, still too elementary. Yeah. Some people say this is all just tripe. Like you can't, sure. you can't use this stuff to, to make any real predictions. You could use it to look back at the past, but to use it for the future, probably right. not. But some people do believe in the idea that if you have enough data, uh, and the right kind of data, you can get a clear picture of misery. And again, that's what we're after here. <laughs> like the whole point of the misery index is to figure out how unhappy and, and just low the average person in a country is feeling at that moment. Yeah. Right? So um, HuffPo actually came up with a pretty good one. HuffPo. Boo! Yay! In 2009, <laughs> HuffPo came up with what they called the Real Misery Index, right? And so a lot of um, people cite the the use of what's called U3 unemployment statistics. Yeah. Which when you hear unemployment numbers in the news, that's what you're hearing. That's what the Bureau of Labor Statistics issues as the official unemployment numbers, right? Yeah, and that's the very first thing that people will say if they want to poo-poo the unemployment numbers. That that these are these are just false numbers. Yeah, if someone says, "Hey, man, look how great ex-president is doing. Look at the unemployment rate." Right. They say, "Man, they're just using the U3." Right. They need to use the U6. Wake up, pal. <laughs> yeah. Open your eyes. Which you know is valid. Well, yeah. So um, the BLS has six uh, measurements of unemployment. U1 through U6, and U6 is the broadest. Yeah. It includes people who are so discouraged with the state of the job market that they've given up looking for work mm-hmm. and are just like have given themselves over entirely to uh, Judge Alex. Sure. Right? And then um, it also includes people who are working part-time but wish they could work full-time, but there's no full-time work available. Yeah, like so, I'm a graphic designer, but I work at Starbucks. So that's the U6 measurement, that, and that's considered the the broadest snapshot of unemployment, the real um, vision of unemployment. Yeah, like you said, mostly they use U3, I, I guess because it's in the middle. I mean, U1 they would never use, U2. Everybody <laughs> used to like, but not anymore. <laughs> I still like you too. Do you good? Yeah, you know, not like I used to. I'm not poo-pooing anything. But I did see that concert they did on uh, HBO. Uh-huh. And I, I have to hand it to them. My big problem with you two for years was the, they just got so out of control with those live shows. Mm. Like these giant spider spaceships and things. And <laughs> right. I was always of the belief that, man, you need to go back to basics and just get up on stage and play again. Yeah. And that's what they did with this new tour. I mean, there was a, a cool visual element, but the stage setup and the way they did it was very much back to basics. And oh, that's cool. I think they really connected with fans again. Yeah, that's got to help. Yeah, because you can I only mean, when the when the interactions between you and the fans, rather than the fans and giant spiders. Yeah, you just you can only go so far in that direction. I think they realize that. Sure. Anyway, way to go, you two. I'll defend those guys. Um. Even though I, I know everyone in the world generally wants to punch Bono in the face, I know I'm it's, not one of them. It's got to feel weird. I like him. Yeah, I'm on record. Sure, Bono, if you're listening. Well, if your uh, Jared indicator is any any predictor, Bono's going to come out to be canonized one day. If what? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? You're like, there's something about Jared. I don't like him. And, you know, we found out about Jared. Right. And then um, so now like, you're saying, Bono's, I like Bono. Good guy. Something's going <laughs> to, like, they're going to find a cure for cancer in a saliva or something. You never know. Um, so did we even mention what the HuffPo, what kind of outrageous numbers they came up with? No, well, we didn't mention everything they used. We were talking about the U6 measurement. HuffPo used that measurement. The most the, extreme one. Of unemployment numbers. They also used other things like um, the inflation rate of food and drink and uh, fuel and health care. Mm-hmm. Because other the misery index just uses the consumer price index, which is inflation as a whole. Right. HuffPo used... Um, the the inflation of some really essential things that people can't do without, yeah. and where you're going to immediately feel the pinch when prices go up with those key things, factors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they also included the rate of credit card delinquency, the cost of housing, how many people are using food stamps. Yeah, that seems like a smart move. Totally. Home equity loan deficiencies. Uh-huh. I guess people who are uh, late on their payments. Um, and then they took the average of those seven numbers and added it to the U6 unemployment numbers, which. Here you can step back and say, wait a minute, how would you, how are you adding this together? How does this make any sense? You can't just keep adding things. Right. And it really, you can take that all the way back to the initial misery index. Like, what? You're just adding unemployment percentage and inflation, and all of a sudden you have a magic number? That doesn't yeah. make any sense. It, this HuffPo metric really points out the inherent flaw in it, I think. Yeah, because in 2008, the Oaken misery index was uh, 8.1, but HuffPo's real misery index a.k.a. you think things are bad, here's how bad they really are index, was 29.9 compared to the 8.1. Right, and some people are like, oh, well, that just shows how off the Oaken misery index is. Yeah. Who knows? I know they quit doing the real misery index at HuffPo like five years ago. I think it was a, am I going to call it a stunt? It was a bit of a stunt. Maybe, but I'm sure really what happened was the writer who is contributing it for free sure like left for a paying job <laughs> that's, probably, that's probably what happened to the huffpo real misery index yeah you're probably right um i was reading this guy uh tim mcmahon he has a site or he writes for a site i'm not sure it's his or not called inflationdata.com jim mcmahon tim McMahon, oh, okay. his brother gotcha <laughs> not the super bowl shuffle no his brother okay um so he he mentioned this 2001 paper that concluded that Unemployment causes 1.7 times more misery than inflation. And so if you're doing any kind of misery index that uses those two, you need to first multiply the unemployment number by yeah. 1.7 before adding it to um, the inflation number mm-hmm. to, to properly weight it. Yeah. And I'm like, how did they come up with that? So I looked at the paper and it was actually pretty clever. There's like 23 years of this survey of life satisfaction and happiness that these researchers looked at back in 2001. And they found that... um, Economically based or just like how happy are you? No, here's the thing. It was how happy are you? It was like a a single question like, would you say based on how you're feeling right right now that you are fairly satisfied, unsatisfied, very satisfied with your life right now, right? And then they took that that measurement for that that country as a whole. And you can do this for any country that participated in the survey. And then they looked at inflation, and then they looked at um, uh, unemployment for mm-hmm. those years. And they could figure out the the variation between, or the, the interplay between unemployment and inflation and satisfaction. And they found that uh, the, that, um, l- that unemployment was one time, 1.7 times more miserable than 
inflation in regards to life satisfaction gotcha. as that survey goes. It's pretty clever. Yeah. It's a lot of hocus pocus, but it's, I thought it was pretty clever how they did it. I, that makes sense to me because to be without work, like if you have a job and things, inflation is happening, you still have your job. Sure. And you're like, man, this sucks to pay this much more, but you can still conceivably pay for yeah, it. Yeah. I'll cut back here or there. Right. If you, if you're unemployed, then there's not a lot of hope. Right. Yeah. That number might be conservative. Even. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. Very interesting stuff, sir. So that's, uh, that's it, man. That's the misery index. Mm-hmm. You got anything else? No, but I'm looking forward to hearing from economists that. Me too. Like in an unbiased way, try to explain things. Me too. If you if you send just you know these crazy political emails and they're they're, they're going to fall in deaf ears because everyone yells at each other that they're right. I just want to hear some real numbers. Yeah. Do it, Chuck. <laughs> Uh, if you want to know more about the Misery Index, you can type those words in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And since I said search bar, just plain old search bar, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this uh, follow-up on Vocal Fry once again. Oh, yeah. Um, regarding Vocal Fry, guys, uh, you guys were offended because someone said Vocal Fry was repulsive. But there is another side to this, dudes. I suffer from a neurological disorder known as misophonia, which we totally should do a show on this. I agree. Uh, it's a condition where a person has extreme emotional response to commonly occurring sounds. Uh, and I remember hearing a lot of times it's like people chewing mm-hmm. noises or gum or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, in my case, my trigger noise is the high-pitched S sound uh, when some people speak. Uh, it feels like my brain is cringing as if an allergic reaction is taking place. Cannot stress enough, this is not a mere annoyance. It's a legitimate mental disorder that can vary great in, uh, greatly in severity. Uh, I don't visibly freak out when I hear my trigger noise, but it really kills me inside. Uh, it gives me an instant headache, and uh, it's why, uh, which is why I will get away from the noise if at all possible. Um, I believe in avoiding complaining in life and playing the victim, but this disorder really has made my life uh, like a subtle hell. Uh, it's been especially toxic to my family relationships and my ability to learn in school. Um, I felt compelled to email you guys because you... Uh, definitely appreciate interesting medical conditions. I think it would be a great topic for a show someday. Uh, there's a documentary about it called Quiet, Please. If you watch uh, the trailer, uh, you might be inspired to watch it to learn what the condition is. Oh, yeah. Uh, huge thanks to everyone at Stuff You Should Know. You make the mundane parts of my life interesting and educational. Uh, I'm going to anonymize this okay. from Texas because I didn't hear back from them. From Tex. Yeah, <laughs> Tex. Uh, P.S. Was in disbelief when Chuck said he had not seen Billy Madison or Happy Gilmore. That's a good PS. I believe it. It's a good postscript. And uh, post PPS, right? Not PSS. I think it's post postscript. Yeah, but people often put PSS. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, do you think stuff you should know could ever become a television show? <laughs> well, no, Tex. Never. <laughs> we actually did that. We, we found out the hard way that it came. Yeah, we did a TV show on the Science Channel. And. Uh, Ran for one full season that played out over the course of several days. Which we'll always have, Chuck. <laughs> we'll always have that season of television we did once. It lasted nine or ten days. Yeah. Let's just show them all at once. Yeah. Out of order. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you never know. We might get a, another shot at stardom. But we're not looking to. No. I like it in this room where no one's looking at us. Yeah. Jerry doesn't even look at us. No, she's just there looking away mm-hmm. in disgust. That's right. 
Uh, good idea about the misophonia. I think we mentioned that before. Like that was, I really like that vocal fry episode, mm-hmm. and that was the one thing that I wish we would have yeah. mentioned because it, it's a legitimate thing that it Absolutely. does affect some people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, look for a misophonia episode at some point in the future. Text. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, we're all over social media. We're on uh, Twitter and Instagram at SYSK Podcast. We're on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And you can join us at our very own home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 